Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, Editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's June 2022. In this month's issue of Itchy, the second of the 2022 updates to the Compendium of Strategies to Prevent Healthcare-Associated Infections in Acute Care Hospitals was published. This paper provides practice recommendations for prevention of ventilator-associated pneumonia, ventilator-associated events, and non-ventilator hospital-acquired pneumonia. My guests today are three of the authors of these updated recommendations. Joining me are Mike Klompas, hospital epidemiologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and a professor in the Department of Population Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute in Boston. Greg Preeby, an associate professor of anesthesia at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School and a pediatric infectious diseases and pediatric critical care medicine specialist. And finally, Eric Eichenwald, a professor of pediatrics and the chief of the division of neonatology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, good to be here. Thanks. So the publication of these updated prevention recommendations is occurring at an opportune moment, I think. As you talked about on a previous episode, Mike, pneumonia is the most common hospital acquired infection. And unlike several other HAIs, such as CLABZ, CAUTI, and C. diff, for which we had observed substantial year-to-year -year reductions between 2015 and 2019, the incidence of ventilator-associated events has not been decreasing during that time period. And in 2020, the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, the CDC reported a 35% increase in ventilator-associated events. So this seems like a good time to revisit our efforts to prevent pneumonia and other complications among our mechanically ventilated patients, and to think about what we can and should be doing to prevent pneumonia in our non-ventilated patients as well. So as we talk about the updated practice recommendations, we will be referring frequently to three clinical entities, VAP, NVHAP, and VAE, that are to some extent related, but that are not the same. And I suspect that most of our listeners are familiar with the concepts of VAP and NVHAP, or non-ventilator hospital-acquired pneumonia, but that some will not be as familiar with the term ventilator-associated events, or VAE. So perhaps we can start our discussion by talking a little bit about VAE, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Sure, so, so VAE, standing for Ventilator Associated Events, is a surveillance framework that CDC created back in 2013. They created it in response to some of the challenges associated with traditional VAP surveillance. Those challenges, as, as uh, all of us in the trenches know well, is that diagnosing ventilator associated pneumonia is a real bear. The signs are neither sensitive nor specific. There's a lot of inter-observer variation and that leads to large differences in perceived VAP rates between clinicians, between hospitals across time. Um, and it's unclear that is because of real differences in pneumonia rates or because of differences in the way that surveillance is being done because the traditional definitions are so subjective. At the same time, CDC asked the question, why is it that safety surveillance or quality of care assessment is focusing on pneumonia alone? when so many other things can go wrong for a ventilated patient, such as pulmonary edema or ARDS or a pulmonary embolism or a pneumothorax, et cetera. And so for all these reasons, CDC gathered together a group of uh, professional stakeholder societies, nurses, doctors, 
uh, thoracic people, infectious disease people, infection control people, respiratory therapists, so on and so forth, and said to them, do something. And they were the ones who came up with the ventilator associated events framework, which basically says that instead of trying to find pneumonia, which we can't do reliably, let's, from a surveillance point of view, look for the syndrome of pulmonary deterioration, the patient who was stable or improving on the ventilator and then had a sustained deterioration. And the advantage of that approach was that, A, it sort of sidesteps the, the canard, really, that we can accurately tell from a surveillance point of view who does and doesn't have pneumonia and uh, broadens the focus of surveillance beyond just pneumonia alone to other stuff and allows us to apply much more objective criteria. So a ventilator-associated event is defined as a patient who has stable or improving ventilator settings, particularly the, uh, the positive end-expiratory pressure and the fracture-inspired oxygen. That's going on for at least two days, followed by at least two days of worsening oxygenation as manifested by an increase in ventilator settings, either again with the, the PEEP or the FiO2. And that's, that, that's a VAE. So it sounds to me like if you think about the Venn diagram of these, these are two partially overlapping circles, right? So some VAEs are related to pneumonia infection and some are not, and some VAPs would be identified as a VAE, as a VAE but some would not, perhaps. So related, but not that, that's all exactly the correct. They're, they're, they're definitely, they're intersecting, but distinct uh, entities. So about, um, about a third of VAEs will be pneumonia. Um, the rest of them are primarily caused by, by excess fluid, pulmonary edema, uh, fluid overload of one flavor or another, atelectasis, and ARDS. That sort of accounts for most, uh, most VAE, VAEs. Conversely, there are some patients who get a clinical diagnosis of ventilator-associated pneumonia who do not meet VAE criteria. And by definition, that means the patient had uh, stable or minimal changes in their ventilator settings. And so... What I think that implies is either that's a very mild pneumonia because it didn't require additional support from the, the, the ventilator or it wasn't pneumonia at all. It was one of these, sort of these, these many mimicking conditions that we know are, are uh, common in the ventilator population. Craig and Eric, do these same VAE concepts, do these apply in the pediatric and neonatal populations as well? Or is this something that's really relevant only to the adults? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, maybe I'll take that, Eric. CDC also asked a similar group to get together and try to come up with a pediatric-specific uh, definition. And uh, after lots of focus groups with similar types of specialists, we decided to go with mean airway pressure rather than PEEP as the metric related to the level of ventilator support for pediatrics, and that included neonates. And the number of cutoffs are a little bit different in pediatrics than in uh, adults in that the FiO2 change is 25% instead of 20%. But basically the, the concept is the same, that it's a period of stability on the ventilator and then a deterioration either in the mean airway pressure or the uh, FiO2. And it's clear in pediatrics that also that there's a lot of overlap or, or not that much overlap with infection it's probably even fewer are infection related in pediatrics, although we don't really have great data yet to know exactly how many fewer. And similarly, many patients with what we used to call, pediatric patients with what we used to call VAP probably would not trigger the current, at least US definition of pediatric BAE. As you know, the, the Europeans have also proposed different definitions based on PEEP actually in pediatrics 
which are a little more sensitive, so they're more likely to trigger uh, with a mild case of ventilator sensitive pneumonia or other issues like fluid overload. So, and, and Eric might want to comment on preterm infants, which is even more challenging. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Craig. I, I think that we, what we usually say in the NICU is that our babies in the newborn intensive care unit really don't, are not just small adults or just small children. They really are a very distinct population. And much of this work has been done outside of the preterm population. And so much of this hasn't really been validated. And, and certainly on, on the definitions from the adult side are really not relevant to ventilatory practices in most NICUs and particularly around preterm infants. And you know, one of the main differences in very preterm infants is, the, is how long they tend to be um, mechanically ventilated could be for many weeks. And so they do have a risk of developing bronchopulmonary dysplasia or chronic lung disease. And some of the exacerbations of their pulmonary status are due to exacerbations of their chronic lung disease, which is difficult to sort out, particularly when we start talking about ventilator-associated pneumonias. And so while many NICUs in the past did report VAP rates, that's not reported anymore into NHSN. And much of the work in the pediatric population looking at VAEs has been done outside of the preterm population. So we're still a bit in the dark with how to categorize these sorts of pulmonary exacerbations in, in our population. There is certainly some crossover from what Greg is a pediatric intensivist and myself as a neonatologist. We both take care of term newborns and they probably fall more into the category of what, of what Greg was talking about. But then once you get into the extremely preterm population, I think it becomes much more difficult. So they, one of the um, implications or, or issues we've had to wrestle with is that CDC created these things, as we said, just in 2013, and therefore we don't have the sort of very rich history of prevention literature for VAE like we have for VAP. And so the challenge has been, how do you guide people on how to do VAE prevention when all of our literature speaks to a different entity, VAP, which, as we said a moment ago, is an imperfect overlap. And if you put in place a program that's designed purely to prevent VAP, as we said, that's only going to prevent one third of the VAEs. And so we, we had to wrestle with that as a panel. And what we, what we did is we, we recognized a couple of things. First of all, that there actually is a very good literature now on risk factors for event-associated events. There, there are a lot of studies that are out there now that classify those. And so we list off the risk factors that have been identified inside of the, um, the, the compendium document. And then we're slowly but surely seeing a steady stream of, of studies that are, are actually prospective interventional trials that are attempting to do VAE prevention. And we have some insight from those. But more broadly, because in relative terms, the amount of literature on VAE prevention is still very much in its, its infancy relative to the literature on VAP prevention, what we chose to do for this compendium is say, we will tell you the things that have been, that have been reported to decrease VAP rates rather than focusing just on those that have been that we know present vent VAE rates because our knowledge of that is so, so slim. But that motivation to create VAE was driven by the weaknesses of VAP as an outcome measure. And therefore we said, it's not enough in your study to show a decrease in VAP rates. 
you also have to show a corollary decrease in an objective outcome, which could be VAE, or it could be duration of mechanical ventilation, hospital length of stay, mortality, antibiotic utilization, or costs. That, that's the way we try to sort of navigate those, uh, those narrows. I think that's a great point that, and perhaps that's how this guideline is a little bit different than say the CLAB-Z and the MRSA where most of those recommendations are based on preventing that very specific you know, infectious type outcome like CLAB-Z. Whereas you're looking at more of some preventing the risk factors or reducing the risk factors that lead to VAEs and VAP. So I think that's a nice thing for people to be aware of. So with that in mind, maybe, uh, or I'm sure everybody's very interested to hear about the new recommendations or major changes in the recommendations uh, that have been included in the 2014 document. So what major changes will people find in this update? So maybe we can cover that in sequence for adults, children, neonates. So I'll, I'll go first for, uh, for, for adults. The, the, the starting point, the most powerful thing you can do to prevent a pneumonia in a hospitalized patient is, uh, is recognize that the ventilator, particularly invasive mechanical ventilation, is the biggest risk factor. So finding ways to avoid or to minimize duration of mechanical ventilation is the most powerful thing you can do to prevent pneumonia and a ventilator-associated event. And so we start by saying avoid intubation if you can, prevent reintubation if the patient has been extubated. And therefore, look to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or high-flow nasal oxygen as alternatives, either to avoid ventilation altogether or to act as bridges for it to allow a patient to get off ventilation sooner and to stay off ventilation. In parallel to that, minimizing sedation. You know, the more deeply sedated a patient is, the more likely they are to require sustained ventilatory support. And the literature is telling us that the best way to do that is you need a protocol an active protocol to minimize sedation, and there are lots of ways into, to cut that protocol, but you, you need to have a something. Mobilize patients, so improve and maintain physical conditioning. That, I think, is our core measures. In addition to that, carried over from before is elevate the head of the bed, use early enteral rather than parenteral nutrition, and then one, uh, one change, a major change, actually, from the last go-round is that we now say we recommend as an essential practice to provide oral care with toothbrushing, brush the patient's teeth, but do not use chlorhexidine. And that follows from two lines of discovery. One is that there's an increasing number of studies that suggest, certainly at the level of meta-analysis, that brushing the teeth might actually be associated with lower mortality rates. In parallel, we have now a, a decent amount of data telling us that oral care chlorhexidine does not clearly help patients. And that's a bit of a nuanced story because on the one side, uh, there are meta-analyses that associate oral chlorhexidine with lower VAP rates, which is why historically it was recommended. But on closer look, those studies have some, some difficulties, which is that uh, there's a circularity between the way that chlorhexidine works and the way we, tra we track uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia. Uh, chlorhexidine is an antiseptic. So if part of your definition for pneumonia is a positive culture, you're going to see fewer positive cultures when you're using chlorhexidine. So if you don't account for that, then you might get a fake out as to whether there's truly is a decrease in pneumonia rates or not. The other factor is that because there's so much subjectivity in pneumonia diagnosis, that if your study, even if it's a randomized trial, if it's open label, it's subject to bias. And so what happened was that when we looked at just the double blind randomized study and compared them to open label studies, we found that Whereas open label studies found a significant decrease in VAP rates, 
there was no signal on the, on the double blind studies, again, suggesting that surveillance bias was playing a role. In addition, when we look at those same randomized controlled trials and look at other outcomes, those objective outcomes that are, we look for corollary evidence to prove that something is actually reducing pneumonia, ICU length of stay, ventilator length of stay, mortality rates, we found no impact on duration of mechanical ventilation, no impact on ICU length of stay. And some studies that actually suggest that oral chlorhexidine may increase mortality rates. And then finally, there was just a recently completed uh, de-adoption study in which a number of ICUs, predominantly in Canada, randomized their ICUs to, 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 to normal care versus taking away oral chlorhexidine and replacing it with a mouth care protocol without chlorhexidine. And that was actually associated with no significant change in, um, in infection-related ventilator-associated uh, complications, no change in mortality either, one way or the other, and actually better, better oral health um, without chlorhexidine. And so for those reasons, uh, chlorhexidine has been, now been downgraded and taken out of, out of our, our list of recommendations. Thanks. So maybe we'll work our way down the age categories here. So Greg, do you want to talk to us about the, the major updates and recommendations for the pediatric population? Sure. You know, unlike in adults, the, the evidence base for pediatrics is much, much slimmer. And so we really didn't make any major changes from the 2014 guidelines, but we did add a few little things that are kind of based on, as Mike said, risk factor studies for VAE. And so one of the, again, similar to adults, we said getting off the, avoiding intubation if possible using non-invasive or uh, hypovenasal cannula and steps to uh, get patients off ventilators uh, as quickly as possible are really important. We also added the avoiding fluid overload, and that's again around the risk factor study showing that fluid overload is a major risk factor for pediatric VAE. And really there weren't any other remarkable changes. We did add considering early tracheostomy, again, based on low quality, or low quality evidence, but a growing number of studies. And that was also kind of upgraded a little bit as an additional approach in the, in the adult studies. So that's an additional approach in pediatrics. So really there, there was not a lot of changes in the overall recommendations in pediatric uh, VAP or VAE prevention. Eric can comment on the, uh, on the preterm. Yeah, thanks, Greg. So for whatever evidence, base there is in pediatrics is even less in neonatology. So um, much of the recommendations for VAP or VAE prevention in the NICU are really extrapolated from what's already done in adult and, and pediatric intensive care units. However, I think with this iteration of the document, there's been some changes in practice in uh, particularly in the care of extremely low birth weight infants with a much more aggressive um, attempt to maintain babies off mechanical ventilation from the delivery room into the NICU with use of non-invasive ventilation, either CPAP or nasal um, intermittent mandatory ventilation. And those practices have been associated with both a decrease in the need for mechanical ventilation and a decrease in the, in the incidence of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. So really across the country now, this effort to maintain very preterm babies off the ventilator is something that is, I think, highlighted in, in this document that that's a, a bit of a practice change from 2014, even though we made the same recommendation in, in 2014, now in 2022, I think that practice is much more common and is something that most neonatologists are trying to accomplish. We also did 
stress that the use of caffeine in preterm infants for both maintenance off mechanical ventilation, as well as prevention of the need for intubation by um, using caffeine as a prophylaxis against apnea prematurity. And there is some evidence that giving caffeine to very preterm infants in the first 72 hours of after birth is, is associated with improvements in outcome and less duration of mechanical ventilation. So that's a major recommendation as well. Much of what's in this document around preterm infants are things not to do that are sometimes done in adults. So we do not use prophylactic antibiotics. We do not use um, antacids or H2 blockers or PPIs in very preterm babies because those have been associated with adverse outcomes. And so some practices in adults have been associated with worse outcomes in preterm babies due to changes in the microbiome and other things that put them at risk for both late onset sepsis and necrotizing enterocolitis. And so there is some information in the document of things that we believe are potentially harmful to preterm infants that might be done in in the adult population. Okay, thank you. So I think one of the important components of, of all this quality improvement work is to perform monitoring to assess our level of compliance with these recommended practices, and then the outcomes of interest as well to see if we're actually making the improvements that we were hoping to make. So what outcome and process measures related to VAP or VAE should we be monitoring? What did you come up with for us to do in that regard? The the primary metric that we recommend monitoring is uh, ventilator-associated events. So that is the current surveillance standard per uh, National Health Health, Healthcare Safety Network, NHSN. And uh, we recommend following that, uh, that guidance from CDC. And then for process measures, it's really just looking at rates of adherence to those essential measures that you'd recommended in terms of the prevention practices. Bundles, whether looking at them as a bundle or independently, I guess there are different approaches to to how you look at those. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I mean, I I think that for an institution that's really focused on on getting their event-associated events down, which I think is, is the right thing to do, you want to make sure you have a bundle that's optimized for event-associated event prevention. So that would be the essential practices that are outlined in this document. Plus, we also note repeatedly, as, uh, as Greg pointed out, the importance of volume uh, management as a risk factor for bad outcomes for patients and for VAEs. And so putting into place systems to monitor sedation levels, volumes, head of bed elevation, oral care, particularly with, uh, with, with toothbrushing, so on and so forth, are, are we feel the, the key process measures to have your eyes on. And in the recommendations, you also talk about additional practices. These other practices that you might consider if you're doing all of your essential practices well, but you're still not seeing the improvement in those outcomes, the VAEs that you were looking for. What additional practices might people consider if they find themselves in that situation? So the, the, the two flavors of additional practices in the, in the adult set, one is things that where they actually have good evidence that improves objective outcomes, even mortality, but in whom there's still a question mark around harm. And the key example that's going to be selective digestive decontamination. Uh, the other category inside of the additional approaches are things in which there's a possi- possibility, there's studies that report lower VAP rates. We just don't have good enough data to know what the impact is on corollary outcomes, such as duration of mechanical ventilation, length of stay, and mortality. 
And, and those, those are sort of two different, different flavors. And so the, the general guidance is that if you do everything in the essential practices and you still have unacceptably high VAE rates, uh, then you should consider adopting some of these additional approaches and you can make your judgment based upon the, you know, the, the limitations or the concerns with each of those different two kinds of additional approaches. Anything to add, Greg or Eric? No, we really kind of mirrored it on the, uh, the adult guideline and table and uh, adjusted where we could with pediatrics in general was downgrading the level of evidence because of the, the limited amount of evidence in pediatrics. Yeah, and our additional practices are really phrased as no particular evidence that they're harmful, but no evidence that they prevent VAP or um, VAE. I would say that the one thing that is unique um, or one of the things that's unique in, in our recommendations is the use of oral care using maternal colostrum, which obviously is not done in any other population. Um, and there's some evidence, not great, but, but it's a practice that's sort of snuck into neonatology that colostrum does have some um, anti-infective ability, and that may be something that that is useful for mouth care in very, pre, very preterm babies. And there's some studies that have looked at this that are mostly observational in nature that have demonstrated a decreased incidence of VAP in, in, in the preterm population. And we believe that this is clearly not gonna be harmful and it may have some potential for benefit. And so that is in the new document as well. I think the, a new section of the recommendations this, this time around is a section on non-ventilator hospital-acquired pneumonia, or NVHAP. So uh, I think you've mentioned already that NVHAP is actually more common than VAP, um, but we know a lot less about the prevention of NVHAP. But what strategies are recommended in the updated guidelines uh, to help us prevent NVHAP in this population, or non-ventilated population? Yeah, no, thank you for that. So, so, so that, this was a bit of a dilemma. On the one hand, as you point out, it's more common than ventilator-associated pneumonia. Um, and yet we have much less data on how to prevent non-ventilator-hospital-acquired pneumonia. And um, in terms of outcomes, it's just as serious as ventilator-associated pneumonia, mortality rates ranging from 15 to, to 30%. And so it's a bit of a, a, bit of a bind. What, what we do have is a lot of um, before-after studies or quasi-experimental studies that at least give us a glimpse as to what some of the things that are that might be helpful. And in particular, it's oral care again. And as before, um, oral care, we, we believe, should include toothbrushing, not just a rinse. And again, we have this caution around the use of chlorhexidine. So we recommend uh, good toothbrushing or oral care without chlorhexidine. Uh, number two is mobilizing patients, uh, getting patients out of bed as much as possible in order to maintain their physical strength, maintain their mental clarity, maximize their, uh, their, their swallowing and um, muscle control in the upper airway, uh, out of bed to, uh, to, to be able to eat. Diagnosing and managing uh, dysphagia, so working out which patients actually have a problem with dysphagia and therefore at risk of aspiration pneumonia and taking steps to, in order to minimize the risk of aspiration in that population. And then uh, being cognizant of the lessons that uh, the COVID has really brought us, which is that respiratory viral infections actually account for a decent chunk of hospital-acquired pneumonia. We've seen that with, uh, with COVID. Uh, historically, we actually saw it, of course, with other respiratory viruses, with influenza, with RSV. 
And the, the protection strategies for uh, respiratory viruses was quite different from simply mobilizing a patient or brushing their teeth or preventing um, aspiration. It requires attention to all the things that we've been doing during COVID, which is being attentive to, to masking when there's a lot of disease going around, preemptive testing, attention to, uh, to, to ventilation, so on and so forth. And so that's the other axis that we refer people to, uh, to, to, to consider. And then finally, uh, just as in the, the VAP VAE literature, there does appear to be some success using bundles that combine all these interventions together into a comprehensive and integrated package. And there's some, some hospitals that have reported tremendous success by creating NVHAP bundles. This is not something that's recognized in our population in the newborn intensive care unit, although I'm, it clearly happens, but not to this, not to the same degree as it would in the in the adult ICUs by by any means. I think that there are some poorly studied alternative feeding practices in preterm infants, such as transpyloric feeds, which are sometimes recommended to try to prevent aspiration. But again, that, that's been very poorly studied and it's not clear that that's advantageous. Well, we end each episode of the podcast by asking our guests to give listeners an action item that they can take away from the podcast and do something with soon, you know, tomorrow or next week. Uh, so what tip or advice would you give to someone who's looking to the compendium for help with reducing the risk of VAP or VAE or NVHAP in their hospital? So I would say two things. I would say that, first of all, take a look at your ventilator bundle and match it up against the, the compendium and be particularly attentive to whether your ventilator bundle is addressing VAE or VAP. And if it's only addressing VAP, think about the additional things that will help to prevent VAEs as well. Number two, if you have no visibility into what's happening with non-ventilator hospital-acquired pneumonia in your hospital, uh, now's the time to take a look, to try to find a way to measure that inside your hospital and to see if, if you have strategies in place to prevent it. And if not, that's a real opportunity area. Couldn't agree more with Mike. I would say uh, form a team and, and try to really focus on the processes of care. In pediatrics, we often use these things called commission by cards, where, which are kind of a scripted rounding tool to do audits on practices around something like fluid management, we, we talk about uh, did on rounds, people discuss a, a fluid goal, as simple as that. And the, the, just the answer is yes or no. And just in doing that, and then showing those results to the clinicians on the unit, that can drive uh, improvements in that desired practice. But it's hard, you know, it's, it's hard to change practice, as you all know. <laughs> and so it takes a lot of persistence and showing people the data. And I think in the NICU, what I would say is probably the most important area for improvement is process improvement around the use of non-invasive ventilation, because I do think that this truly is a nursing skill as opposed to the physicians um, having a skill set and being able to maintain a very small baby on non-invasive ventilation. And so I think having a team, multidisciplinary team with respiratory therapy, nursing, nurses and medicine to look at practices around maintenance of non-invasive ventilation in, in the very preterm population is really, is really key. That and making sure that you're monitoring the proportion of patients that come out of the delivery room with non-invasive ventilation 
particularly CPAP versus um, requiring mechanical ventilation from the very beginning in the delivery room. Those would be the things I think would be the most important improvements that NICUs could undertake to try to avoid the complications of mechanical ventilation. Well, those are, I think, really helpful and thoughtful suggestions, and I think that's a great place to end today. And I want to thank all three of you for joining me and also to thank you and your colleagues for all the work that you've done to provide us with these updated practice recommendations. I think it's worth noting that you did all of this in the setting of a global pandemic that I'm sure brought many more additional demands for your time and energy. So again, thank you for all of your work on this. I also wanna thank our producers, uh, Lindsay McMurray and Barry Wilhelm. And finally, I wanna thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast.